0: You know that's true, right? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Very middle of your Bibles, the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. This is not the text we're going to be looking at this morning But I'd like to start us in Psalm 119, nonetheless. Please look with me at verses 97 through 105. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 105. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I love the Bible, and I know that you love the Bible. We aspire here at Emmanuel to be Bible people. One of the reasons we love the Bible is because it gives to us moral clarity. Uh, In a world of confusion, lost in moral darkness, the Bible breaks in with light uh, the Word says, it's like a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's like the Scriptures say, this is the way you should go. Here is a safe path for your feet. Here is light in the darkness. I just love that about the Bible. Uh, the Word is to us, Christians, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It literally tells us where our feet should go. It tells us where our eyes should look. It tells our hands what to do. The Bible is a guide to us. And I just wanted to start this message by glorying in the Bible, and by directing our hearts to be lovers of God's law, lovers of His Word, and to be those who look to the Scriptures as a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. So please now turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and these are the verses that we'll consider this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through chapter 5 and verse 2. Ephesians four, beginning in verse twenty five. Lovers of God's word, lovers of his law, you Bible people, hear the word of the living God. Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty five. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you chapter 5 verse 1 therefore be imitators of god as beloved children and walk in love as christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to god as we come to these verses now beginning in verse 25 we have a series of practical exhortations of commandments of moral instruction. And today's a day we're actually going to go through each one uh, and look at this instruction that Paul gives to these Ephesian believers. But briefly, let me remind you of where we are in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, the latter verses of Ephesians chapter 2, particularly verses 16 through uh, the end of the chapter, we're told that we as Christians, those who have been reconciled to Christ, are members of a new kingdom. We're members of a new household, we're members of a new race of people, a new humanity in Christ Jesus. And then beginning in chapter 4 and verse 1, we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Uh, We're told how we're to live as those who are members of a new kingdom, uh, as those who are members of a new household, part of a new family in Christ, as those who are members of this new humanity in Christ Jesus. And so last week, as we approached this moral instruction that we're given in verse 25 and following, I had a three-point outline, three, three words that I, I gave to you last week. The first was a note of clarification when we approached these verses. And that note of clarification was simply to note that these verses, where we're told don't do this and do this and live this way, these verses in verses 25 and following were written to Christians. That was the note of clarification. And the reason I thought it was so important to acknowledge that is because we understand these words being written to Christians and those who are saved by the grace of God and those who have been transformed by His grace. We know that we're not doing these things in order to earn God's favor. We don't obey God's law to achieve status with God. Rather, as those who have been given status by God through Jesus Christ, we're now told to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Those who have been given a new nature in Christ, new will, new desires, an ability to overcome and mortify our sin, Paul says you're to walk in this way now. And that's good news because it means we're not earning God's favor. We're not uh, getting His satisfaction by what we do. Rather, as those who have already received uh, uh, God's favor... As those who have already uh, uh, been adopted by God as children, we now work out of that new identity. As those who want to please our Heavenly Father and live out our union with Christ. I then shared, secondly, a note of distinction, a helpful distinction. Uh, We distinguish between what on the one hand is called positional holiness, what on the other hand we sometimes call progressive holiness. Positional holiness is our standing in Christ, that God considers us now in the present To be holy, to be blameless, to be His children, to be those, as we just sung a moment ago, who could never be plucked from the Father's hand. We have been buried with Christ in His death, raised with Him to newness of life, and we are seated with Him now in heavenly places. Nothing can change that. We are positionally holy, right with God, reckoned righteous in His sight right now. And yet the Bible also talks about holiness in another way. And that is what we sometimes call progressive holiness. That is that that holiness that we can grow in by various degrees. We can become more like Christ. We can grow in grace. We can get better at putting off sin and putting on Christ's likeness and holiness. That's progressive holiness. And when we use that word holiness, that's normally what we're talking about. Well, that's what our text is talking about this morning. It's talking about how we could mature as saints, as we could grow in grace. How we can become more like the Lord Jesus and more progressively holy. And then a third point, the final point we noticed together, was a crucial principle. And that is that growth in holiness does not occur apart from effort. Does not occur apart from effort. I said last week, we can never allow the word effort to become a four-letter word in our Christian vocabulary. But rather, the Bible repeatedly commends Christian people exercising effort in the pursuit of holiness. And so all the language in our text is active language. Put on and put off. Say these things. Don't say these things. Use your hands this way and and not this way. It's active, dynamic language. And as those who have the Spirit's power residing in us, the grace of Christ at work within us, we are to endeavor to exercise together effort in the pursuit of holiness. Well, now we actually want to get to these imperatives these commands that were given in these verses this morning. And, and just two more things to note before we actually embark on going line by line through this text. The first thing I want you to notice as we go through each of these moral principles is that each, each example of moral conduct includes on the one hand a negative prohibition which is balanced by a corresponding positive command. In every single one of these verses there's something we're supposed to put off And there's something we're supposed to put on. It's this dual work Paul is calling us to. We're to put to death our sin. We're not to let it stick to us or attach to us. We're to take it off like a garment. And then we're to put on Christ's likeness. We're to put on holiness. We're to put on virtue. It is indeed a positive vision that Paul is calling us to here in this text. And then the second thing I'll ask that you notice as we go through verse by verse is that all of these exhortations are given to us Concerning our relationships. Each one of these moral principles and imperatives are meant to be lived out in the context of our relationships with one another. And let me quote John Stott, who's commenting on this text at this point. He says this Holiness is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. You cannot be good in a vacuum but only in the real world of people. Besides all the qualities enjoined here are aspects of that unity in the church, which is Paul's prime concern to elucidate and to foster. To this matter, he deliberately gives pride of place. Similarly, the evils to be avoided are all destroyers of human harmony. The holiness we're called to, brothers and sisters, in this text is meant to be lived out in community. In actual relationships, in fact, many of these things you simply cannot do on your own, isolated from other people. All of these virtues Paul is calling us to are meant to be lived out in the context of relationships, in our families, in our neighborhoods, and I think most especially given the emphasis of the book of Ephesians, they're meant to be lived out in the context of the local church. So don't think to yourself as we go through verse by verse, "How how am I going to do these things on my own? Think How can I live these things out in the context of the communities in which God has called me? Okay, so here we have it. We'll just go verse by verse now. I have six points here that come directly out of the text. Moral instruction were given by God. Here we have the walk that God has called us to as Christians. Number one, we are called to be people of the truth. We are called to be people of the truth. Look with me at verse 25. Therefore, those who are new in Christ, you have this new nature, you've been renewed in the spirit of your minds. Therefore, having put away falsehood, negative prohibition, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The word here for falsehood used in the ESV, comprehends all types of falsehood. It could be lying, actually saying things that are untrue. It could be deceiving, cheating, manipulating. Uh, This word could also encompass conveying false ideas or false impressions or false narratives without a sincere interest in learning what's true. Uh, But I I think the emphasis is actually on, on actual lying, though it would encompass other forms of falsehood. Paul's word to Christians in this text is to put away that which is false. Put away lying. We cannot attach ourselves to falsehood. We must attach ourselves to the truth. We indeed must be people of the truth. And I've heard from many missionaries uh, overseas in various uh, countries, various cultures, that one of the uh, sins that is most persistent in new converts is actually this issue of falsehood, not speaking the truth. Apparently, in various cultures, it's just so ingrained in the culture to to lie to get ahead, to cheat people in business. It's just part of how you function in a competitive society. So, I just heard from multiple missionaries that this is really a problem for us convincing Christian people, new converts, that they need to be people of the truth, that they can't live like the prevailing culture lives, that lies to get ahead, or deceives to have advantage over someone else. Well, I don't know that it's very different in America. We're not known as a people to be people of the truth, people of integrity. Uh, Truth is often viewed as really relative, a matter of convenience or expediency. Uh, Whether or not we'll tell the truth is is whether or not it really suits me in the moment. Americans sometimes try to avoid the truth even at all costs. Create false narratives in which we're always the hero or the victim. We lie to get ahead. We deceive when it's expedient to do so. We manipulate others for our own advantage. Paul is essentially saying, you Christians, you're to be different. You men and women who are new in Jesus Christ, who have a new nature, a new will, new desires, you are to live in a way that's different. Don't let falsehood stick to you. Be known as people of the truth. After all, Jesus Christ Himself said in John 14, verse 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 8, and verse 32, He says, If you're My disciples... You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The implication is as those who have been identified with that very one who is the truth, those who have been united to truth itself, we ought to be people who are known for speaking the truth. And notice the reason given in verse 25. The reason we're told to be people of the truth is so that we can preserve our unity with one another. He says, for we are members one of another. The idea is that to speak falsely, if we're not honest with one another, if we don't speak the truth with one another, that will naturally subvert our unity as a body of Christ's people. Nothing is more sure to fracture and divide than to speak falsehoods to one another. And few things will incline us more toward unity than to speak truth with each other, to be people of the truth. Well, friends, here, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, let us be people of the truth. Now, secondly... We've seen that we're to be people of the truth. Now, secondly, we're called to say no to sinful anger and to Satan. Our text calls us to say no to sinful anger and to Satan. Look at verse 26 with me. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. It's an interesting verse. Notice this verse both permits and restricts anger. I don't think it's supposed to be read really as a command to be angry. But nonetheless, anger is permitted. So I, I don't think when we read, be angry and do not sin, like we just need to go find something to go get angry about. Okay? I, I don't think that's Paul's intention here. Uh, he's actually quoting Psalm 4 and verse 4, and commentators have suggested that, that really the idea is that in your anger... You ought not to sin. Now this is not exactly the main idea of this verse, but it's worth briefly noting that not every form of anger is sinful. You know this, right, brothers and sisters, that that there are certain forms of anger that are considered righteous anger. I mean, God himself gets angry. Jesus Christ himself, when he was on earth, when he saw uh, 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 people perverting the temple and making it a place of commerce and business rather than a house of prayer and worship, he gets angry. He's enraged. That's righteous anger when we see uh, harm being done to a person or some form of injustice in the world, it is legitimate to experience some form of righteous, godly anger. But I don't think that's the main thing Paul wants to show us here in this text, because very quickly, Paul wants to censure that sort of anger that borders on sin, especially the sort of anger that is allowed to remain and fester, and such anger is strictly (laughs) condemned. So what do I think is the principle of this text? It is that anger, especially in relationships, is to be promptly and peacefully resolved. The scriptures are telling us that anger is to be promptly and peacefully resolved. And there are innumerable ways to illustrate this text. One that naturally comes to my mind is spouses who are angry with one another. I mean, it's very common in our day, to have spouses who basically stake out and get entrenched against one another for days on end, give one another the silent treatment, there's some sort of disagreement, and they're not going to speak. They're going to go to bed maybe three, four, five days before they seek resolution. Brothers and sisters, you know, according to this text, that sort of behavior is wicked. That sort of behavior is censured by the scriptures. You're not allowed to give the silent treatment to your spouse. Rather, If you experience anger in a relationship, like a spousal relationship, that anger must be promptly and peacefully resolved. We can't allow our anger to become sin. Well, also, there are people in the church who get offended at one another and refuse even to mingle with each other. Uh, You say, this is a large enough room, large enough group of people. I don't have to talk to that individual. They've really uh, ticked me off and bothered me, and I'm just going to avoid them as best I can. Brothers and sisters, I think according to this text and many others, we can say that God hates that sort of behavior. That sort of behavior subverts our unity. That sort of behavior is what we would call sinful anger. And this text, I believe, to be censuring that sort of anger. So many people in churches will nurse grudges and harbor bitterness and foster anger against their own Christian brothers and sisters. And Paul is telling us, you can't allow yourself to live that way. If there's division, if there's tension, if there's anger against a brother or sister... The word of this text is to deal with that anger promptly and peacefully. Don't let the sun go down on that anger. you got to make that phone call or send that text or show up at your brother's sister's house. Deal promptly and peacefully with anger. We're Christians. We've been reconciled in Christ. We're to behave differently. We're to address our anger promptly and peacefully. And it really is striking in verse 26, 27. Paul goes so far as to say that harboring anger and bitterness is actually satanic, or at least makes us vulnerable to Satan. If you allow yourself to be a person of bitterness and strife toward brothers and sisters in the church, Paul is saying you're nothing more than a tool in the hands of Satan to divide and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. He says, give no opportunity for the devil. And I really want to press in here. In our families, in church life, in our workplaces, in our schools, I think according to this text, it's legitimate to have in our minds. You experience anger, you experience frustration. You should think that Satan himself is waiting. He's watching. Is this going to become something I can use? Can I divide God's people with this anger that's being... Let's see what he does. Will he deal with this anger promptly and peacefully? Or will he allow it to become bitterness? a sort of tool that I can use to divide Christ's church. Well, the call of the Christian is to say no to Satan and to say no to sinful anger and to give no opportunity for Satan to divide. We're to deal promptly and peacefully with our anger. Number three, moving on. We're called to put off stealing, to perform hard, honest work, and to show generosity. Three things in verse 28. We're called to put off stealing. And then two positive things we're called to. We're called to perform hard, honest work, and to show generosity. Look with me at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Maybe various forms of theft were part of your background. Maybe you actually stole things, took material objects that were not your own. Maybe you stole time from your employer. Maybe you cheated people to get an advantage at work. Maybe you were dishonest on your taxes. Maybe you're tempted to be dishonest now on your taxes as you go through them over the next couple months. Well, the word here, the command here is that you who stole, you ought to steal no longer. You belong to Christ now and everything is different. And praise God that it's so. It's a radical transformation. This person marked by taking things and stealing from others. Now he's to steal no longer. But rather he's to work with his hands. Is to give to those who have a need. Rather than being characterized by stealing from others, we're given these positive commands. Christians are actually supposed to work in order that we may have something to share with those who are in need. The text says we're to labor hard that we might be able to benefit others. The word there for labor, to work, is is literally to work to exhaustion. We're to work hard with our hands, not to steal from others. Paul is essentially saying rather than taking what wasn't yours, stealing from others, Christians should be marked by generosity. So perhaps you're in the sort of job or position where there's very little accountability. The command to you is to labor hard. You don't have someone looking over your shoulder. You can slack off and no one would know about it. Christians are to be known, brothers and sisters, for working hard, even willing to work to exhaustion. Be hard-working people. Well, maybe perhaps you are a hard worker. That's not a problem for you. You work very hard. And you're in a highly competitive position or in a highly competitive environment, and you're tempted to cheat to get ahead. You're tempted to cut corners and to use and abuse others as you climb the ladder. The command to you is to do honest work. Labor hard, work hard, but sometimes that can be manipulated in our day and age to consume others and to cheat others and to conquer others. We well, got to do honest work as well. Honest work. You're not to cheat. You're not to take advantage of others. You're to work hard. You're to work in a manner that's honest. You'll often hear people say honest work is hard to find. I hear that all the time. Well, it should abound in Christian churches. Christian people really. I mean, I mean that that word Christian, a Christian profession of faith, should be like a comparative advantage in the marketplace. Oh well, so and so is a painter, but I heard he's a Christian painter and you know those christians they do hard and honest work what if that was our t- is that our testimony in the world wouldn't that be a wonderful thing those brothers and sisters if if he goes to emmanuel church if she goes to emmanuel church i know the way those brothers and sisters view their work they do it before the lord i don't have to look over their shoulder they're hard and honest workers in service to christ wouldn't that be a good thing to aspire to isn't that just as it should be according to this text Marked by stealing in the past, now we're marked by hard and honest work. Lots of pressure to cheat, but Paul says be honest. Personal integrity in God's people matters. Mm -hmm. And now perhaps you labor hard. And perhaps you are marked by honest work. You do hard, honest work. You don't need to be exhorted on that front. But you feel the temptation to say to yourself, I work hard for my money. I'm the one who got up early, I'm the one who stayed late, I'm the one who worked all of those long days, and this money is for me and mine. Well, Paul has something to say to you as well. Even if you're working hard and honest work, there's a reason. He says the command to you is to be generous with your earnings. You're to give to those who are in need. It's a beautiful contrast, isn't it? Uh, that, that, that once you were marked by taking what wasn't rightfully yours... And now you're called to take what is rightfully yours through hard and honest work and to give it to those who are in need. Christians are called, brothers and sisters, to be marked by generosity. I'll just say at this point, Christian people should not cling to money. Shouldn't be marked by materialism. I just gotta have. Gotta have this financial security. If I don't, I can't sleep at night. Stock market plunged how many points this last couple weeks? A couple thousand points or something like that? How much did that hurt you? I don't mean in dollars. I mean, how did that affect your joy? I just can't sleep. I can't think. I can't read my Bible. The market's down. What am I going to do? That's not to mark us. It would be those who work hard, those who are honest, those who labor with our hands and are ready to give generously. We're, we're able to pass money on to those who are in need. The power of the gospel totally reverses the way we think and the way we live. All right, number four. Number four, moving along. Verses 29 and 30 were called to guard our speech. Called to guard our speech. Verse 29. Let no corrupting, could be translated unwholesome, talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word... Translated corrupting, it could mean harmful, it could mean unwholesome talk. It's interesting, in another place in the New Testament this word is used as well, this word corrupting or unwholesome, it's used to describe decaying trees that produce rotten fruit. It's like your speech is rotten, it produces decay when you speak. Don't let your speech be marked by that sort of corruption or unwholesomeness. Don't use your speech to hurt, to harm, and to dress down others but only speak what is good, what builds people up, what encourages, what fits the occasion, what gives grace to those who hear. So here's a potentially indicting question. This was in my notes and then I took it out and then I put it back in because it hurts really bad. Okay? Potentially <laughs> indicting question. Think of all your words that you use week by week basis and just ask yourself, do the math in your head, uh, how much, what percentage of your words would qualify as unwholesome talk, harmful talk, corrupting speech? And what percentage of your words would be marked by edification, encouragement, giving grace to those who hear? I don't know about you, that was a really painful question for me to evaluate. Is my speech marked by building up, or is it marked by tearing down? Does my speech give life, or does it bring decay? and death. We are not a generation of people known for guarding our speech and using our words carefully. May we purpose together as a church to build one another up and to give grace to those who hear us. Parents, can we try to do that with our kids? We don't want to tear them down. We don't want to discourage them. We don't want to use unwholesome, corrupting talk. We want to build them up and give grace as fits the occasion. Spouses, can we do that with our husbands and wives? Think of your speech toward your spouse this week. Was it harmful? Did it it bring about injury? Or did it bring life and grace? Brothers and sisters in the church, can we do that with one another? Be the sort of people who guard our speech and use our speech as a a tool in Christ's hands to build up our brothers and sisters, rather than a tool in the hands of Satan to tear them down. And we're told that such unwholesome speech grieves the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. Verse 30 seems to be connected grammatically with verse 29. And the idea is then, when we use our speech to harm others, we're grieving God's Spirit. When we use our speech to injure and to hurt, we're grieving the Spirit of God. It's this sin in particular that's linked with grieving the Spirit. And of course, all sin grieves the Holy Spirit. But it seems that unwholesome speech is specifically connected to grieving the Spirit of Christ. And perhaps this is because our speech is capable of inflicting so much harm and injecting so much division. I mean, the tongue can do so much damage. In fact, James himself in James 3 speaks of the tongue in drastic terms in terms of the damage it might cause. James 3, verses 6-9 through reads as follows, And the tongue, that instrument of speech, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life. Use our speech for good, or we can use our speech to harm and to hurt others. We could use our speech to bring about unity. We could use our speech to bring about division. When we cut down one another with our speech, we grieve the Holy Spirit, that very one who sealed us in Christ. And may our knowledge of this add greater incentive to use our speech to build up and to give grace. We talked about New Year's resolutions a few weeks ago. Wouldn't this be a good New Year's resolution? I'm going to guard my speech more in 2018. I'm going to use my tongue to build up and to edify and to bless, not to tear down and to hurt and to slander and to gossip. I'll tell you one thing I know that is in very high demand these days in churches is people who know how to bless. People who know how to use their speech to edify. People who are able to give grace to those who hear. Don't you find yourself gravitating to those sorts of people? I know if I go to that brother, if I go to that sister... I'm going to get help. I'm going to get encouragement. And then you also know those people right on the other end of the spectrum. I really can't deal with him or her today. Uh, I know if I go there, I'm going to get discouragement. I'm going to get criticism. And so I just got to to duck and, and move past them, right? Well, let us aspire to be the sort of people who encourage one another, who build one another up, who give grace to those who hear I'm praying that God would fill our church with men and women who know how to encourage, how to build up, how to give grace. I really do believe some of us would do well to commit our lifelong that we're going to be that sort of person. My ministry, my unique ministry in this church is going to be to speak the truth, to communicate grace, to give life to all those who hear. I think I have in my head the analogy of... um, you know Pigpen from Charlie Brown? Everywhere that guy walks, there's dirt growing up all around him. He's just got this dirt cloud that follows him everywhere. And Whenever he comes in the room, people cough and they get dirty. And Lucy says, you're getting my dress dirty, all that kind of stuff. Well, where'd it be the opposite of that? What if, uh, just like that, uh, our speech flowered up all around grace and upbuilding and encouragement everywhere we went, rather than people... Uh, decaying and rotting by our presence, they blossomed and bloomed. Everywhere we went, everywhere our speech goes, we'd be giving grace and building up and encouraging. Those sorts of people, listen, brothers and sisters, are so powerful in the church, so potent for good to be an encourager. All right, fifthly, moving along. We're called to be people of kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Called to be people of kindness, tenderness, and forgiveness. Verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Now, I think the, the, the vices in verse 31 are really a summary of all the things we've seen up to this point. For the sake of time, I'll just move ahead to the positive virtues. We're called to be kind to one another first and and tender-hearted. The word tender-hearted means compassionate, able to be affected by others, able to empathize with others. Would people describe you as a kind person? that, That brother, that sister, she's kind. If I go to her, I'm going to experience kindness. I'll find one who is kind and sincerely willing to be a friend to me. How about tender-heartedness? If I go to that brother, he will be tender-hearted. He will know how to empathize with me, and he'll enter into my struggles. This is what Paul's calling us to, to be people marked by kindness and tenderness. And you can imagine a a young mom with a couple kids uh, who's having trouble uh, uh, dealing with the children. And here you are, a mother of five or six, and you say, Wait until you have a few more. I don't, need, I don't want to hear the complaining, right? Is that kindness? Is that tender heartedness? Does that build up? Does that help? No. So wouldn't it be nice for that woman to not come for encouragement? This person is going to empathize and enter in with me. My wife and I would joke, we hear this from college students a lot in college ministry. Oh, I'm so busy. I have no time. Listen, I never had more expendable time than when I was in college, okay? But that doesn't help. That's not kind. That's not tender. That's not empathetic. Hey, I can remember, I was stressed out too when I was in college. Man, I feel, I'm going to pray for you. What are some practical ways I can encourage you? See, that builds up. That's tender hearted. That's kindness. And we want to be the sort of people, people know when I go to that brother or that sister, I'm going to, I'm going to receive kindness from their hand, tenderness, empathy, and love. Well, and then we're called to forgive one another. The last command in verse 32, we're called to forgive one another. looking to Christ as our great example. And I'd say probably few things are more important to the maintenance of unity than the ability to forgive one another fully and freely. Our posture should be, if, if Christ can forgive me, I can forgive anyone. Someone offends you it hurts you, even in a grievous way. You can say, I've done far worse to Christ. I've done far worse. And He's forgiven me so lavishly, so fully, so freely. I can certainly forgive my brother and sister who's disappointed me. The implication seems to be that if we withhold forgiveness either verbally or in our heart, we may not yet understand the gospel. This is one of the ways the gospel informs our lives with one another. If Christ can forgive me, I can forgive those who sin against me. Those who have known Jesus as one who is kind, tender-hearted, and a forgiving Savior will endeavor to imitate him. Now, sixthly and finally, we're called to walk in love. Looking on in chapter 5 now. We're called to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In walking according to these precepts we've been talking about. The text says we are imitators of God. Not as despise slaves but as beloved children what's the difference between those two categories if we obey as a despised slave we bite our lip now we're just gonna do this this is quid pro quo i'm forced to do this this is a, a a master who's harsh and bitter and i'm nothing more than a slave but that's not how we're to obey god we obey god as beloved children you don't have to earn your father's favor. You don't have to earn being a child of your father, right? You're already given that status. You're already God's child. And we behave now as beloved children. Children who, who love our father's smile. Children who long to please him. Children who desire and crave sweet fellowship with God. We don't want to do anything that would inject division or, or ruin that sort of fellowship that we share with God. We obey him as those who are already beloved children. And then he gives what functions as a summary phrase for all Christian conduct. And that is that we are to walk in love. Walk in love. This is a summary of everything we've seen up to this point. There's no better way to describe the walk of the Christian. It's a walk of love. After all, the commands of the previous verses are simply showing us what love looks like. That's what we're seeing. How we use our speech. How we behave toward one another. Whether we're going to lie or tell the truth or steal or work hard, we're learning how to love one another. We're learning how to walk in love. There's an old Puritan saying the law is love's eyes, and without the law, love is blind. The law is love's eyes. How are we going to know how to love each other? How are we going to know what love looks like? Without the law, love is blind. That's all Paul. How are we going to live in loving community with one another? We're going to be people of the truth. Uh, We're going to say no to sinful anger and to Satan. Uh, We're not going to steal. Rather, we're going to work hard and work in a way that's honest. We're going to be generous with one another. Uh, We're not going to be marked by corrupting talk, but rather by grace-filled speech. We're not going to be marked by envy, malice, slander, etc., but rather we're going to be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving toward one another. That is what love looks like. And again, Christ is held before us as the shining example of love. He loved us. And this love came to the ultimate expression in actually giving himself up for us. John 15:13 says greater love has no one than this than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And in this text Christ is calling us to similar self-sacrifice. I just love nestled here at the end of a long list of commandments. Paul points us to Christ and reminds us of his gospel by the way, as you're endeavoring in the hard work of putting off and putting on Christ's likeness remember that you're dearly loved by God and that Christ Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. We're saved by the sacrifice of Christ and then instructed by his example. Well, as I conclude, I just want to observe this. Uh, there are all sorts of, whatever we want to call them, ethicists who would agree with this list of virtues that Paul gives. Okay, there, were, there were those in Greco Roman culture that would say, Yeah, this is what the good life looks like. This is what virtue looks like. Lying's a bad thing. Telling the truth is good. It's a good thing not to be marked by bitterness and anger. And they might look over this list that Paul gives us and they might say, That's pretty good. We agree with that as well. What's the difference between the Christian's obedience and observance of these virtues and that of someone who's godless? This, this is virtuous. The fact is the motivations are completely different. What motivates us to want to pursue this sort of Christ-like character? We do it because we've been loved by God and we've been made his children. We We want to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. I want to look more like my Father who is in heaven and I want to honor him and serve him. I love him so much and therefore I want to honor him as a dearly beloved child. We're motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, aren't we? As the text says, Christ gave himself up for us. How, how could I not give myself up to my brothers and my sisters? Complete, completely different motivation. I don't, I don't tell the truth so that I can live my best life now and have tons of friends. I tell the truth because it pleases Christ. And he himself is the truth and I've been united to him and I love him and want to please him. We've been given a new nature in Christ, and we want to live out that new nature. Change is possible for us. We have resources, not our own, in the Holy Spirit and in the grace of God, and we want to live that out. And what about the unity and harmony of community of God's people? I want to live this way. Because when we're all living this way, we can really be united. We can stand together as God's people. Christians don't live the way they do because they want to live their best life now. They don't live the way they do as a way of maintaining some sort of status with God. No, we've already been given status. But now we want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And what's the goal? What's our goal in all of this? To be more like Christ and to live in union and fellowship with Him and His people, which is a foretaste of everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, can we... Can we endeavor, even this week, to pray through this text, would help me to grow help me to put these certain things off and put these things on. Make me more and more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And may this conduct more and more characterize my life and our life as a community of God's people. Well, may it be so. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would impress these things on our hearts. Help each one of us to know that change is possible through the grace of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. May we endeavor more and more to be people marked by the truths of this text. We so long to look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We sincerely desire to be imitators of God as beloved children. Help us to do this. Lord, we pray for anyone here outside of Christ and discouraged at this list of virtues that it seems so impossible to attain or achieve. Convince them now of the love of Jesus Christ and His willingness to accept them as they are, to receive them, and to change them through the power of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.